Welcome to Rector's Cupboard, a podcast for people who are interested in questions of culture and faith. We ask these questions from outside the institutional structures of religion. We're glad that you're listening and hope that you enjoy and benefit from the conversation. Well, it's it's kind of a rector's cupboard at night. <laughs> Sorry, that makes it sound a little weird. I don't know if I like that. It's, rector's um, cupboard after dark. It's a bit. Whoa, it is. That makes it even worse <laughs> because we we're I'm opening. Sorry, listeners. We're opening the cupboard, and it's nighttime. Because we just had a leadership meeting for our nonprofit society, which was fantastic. Which you but can't necessarily say of all leadership sort of meetings. No, of course so. not. And, and, but uh, this one was good. And, but, but we're still going to open the cupboard now. Yeah, it now, feels unfortunately, appropriate. Unfortunately, our cupboard master, Ken Bell, can't be with us tonight. He was with us by Zoom. Was that Zoom? Yes. Yeah. Um, I was going to say FaceTime. because, But anyway, he was with us by Zoom for the meeting, but he can't be here tonight he's at his daughter's basketball game so allison williams is is filling the role of cupboard master just temporarily just temporarily and we're going to talk about an article that was in in on the cbc news website about the trucker convoy just what everyone loves to talk Um, about and uh i mean this is really a thing now and canada is making news all over the world and that's always good news like is it like um justin bieber and celine dion and hockey and now trucker convoy. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was like, I, I don't How? know if, if these things all equate to what I wish to be no. on a global stage. We usually don't make the news for like this kind other. of thing. But some people, <laughs> for some people, it is really good news, I would suppose. So we're going to talk about that just for uh, a minute first, in this article. But first, Allison, what are we drinking? We are drinking some ciders because I, I'm, I'm particularly fond of ciders. So when it I was my also. turn to go and choose a tasting... I decided I want to go to cider. So today we're going to be trying two Salt Spring ciders. Salt Spring Wild, is that what that one says there? Yeah. yeah. They're in like a big, they're like in a big 750 <laughs> bottle. So yeah, I'm not sure this like is like a one seating for one person thing, although tap. it could be. Uh, so we got two flavors here. This one I bought specifically because I thought you would find it interesting, Todd. This is bitter orange rosemary. And then we mm. also have a plum cider, which is rosemary. just like the most beautiful color. The color it's is just absolutely lovely, beautiful. and it's so here. Delicious. Pass me uh, this. I, I like I'll anything pour bitter some stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what to extrapolate from that comment, Todd. Uh, wow. That's probably enough. Thanks. Okay, uh, so let's see what we think about this. It seems like we don't often we don't often do this without cupboard master Ken. Do I know. We don't. It does I feel really a little wrong, him, doesn't yeah. it? <laughs> Yeah, Ken, we if you're listening, Ken. it's not the same without you. But anyway, here we go. Okay, oh, so. That's good. <laughs> Can you look it? Thank you. Not as bitter as I thought it would be. No. No, the bitter no, is. No, that's good. The bitter is a bit of a misnomer. Um, How's the mm. plum? Well, I got to finish my. We'll oh, we're we'll all trying. We're supposed to finish this and then. Okay. Yeah. So <laughs> one moment, start please, listeners. Please stand by. <laughs> This is lovely. No, someone, someone <laughs> talk because I didn't. <laughs> I like it. It's v- mm-hmm. Very nice. The rosemary, I was a little bit anxious about because sometimes I don't like the kind of like that sort of like very foresty. Botanical. Yeah. 
sort ofness. But like this is not really subtle. in your face, though. Like no, it's very subtle. I like it's it. It's nice. I like it a lot. The, the rosemary is almost more of a scent. Yeah, than, yeah, than more aromatic. Oh, Keith is here, by the well way. Well done, yes. Keith. <laughs> no, we've substituted <laughs> Ken who's with, with who's the Keith. man? Keith Williams. Anybody <laughs> There's another voice. So uh, he's, he's Allison's been on husband, our Keith, is here. Yeah, he joins yes. us generally for the Christmas yes. episodes. I, I believe this yeah. is the third episode. I've been on two Christmas episodes, and now now it's a regular one. Welcome. So if anybody Keith wants to know what my husband we'll promote, sounds like. And you only have to pay us a very little amount. But Keith has a <laughs> cycle, re- bike, a bike repair business called Resurrector Bike Repair. RBR. And it's just fantastic. And he does, he has literally Todd can personally dead attest. bikes back to life. Todd uses him quite yes, regularly for and that. And saved me, I'm not exaggerating, thousands of dollars. <laughs> So, I might yeah. say more well, about you. If you're in the, v- the Vancouver vicinity and you need bike repair <laughs> and you've got a big lineup and stuff, uh, throw us a line and we'll get we'll, you. We'll connect you over. Anyway, welcome. Thank you for the plug. I mean, yeah. I can also attest he's probably one of the nicest people ever. So okay, you also married, have that. You guys are married. No, time. but you, uh, but, no, you can't always say let's that. Try the, let's try the let's plum. Let's try the plum. And okay. then get to the article. Okay, so this article. That's great. Thank you. This article is called, the, 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 the headline is, For many inside the Freedom Convoy, faith fuels the resistance. February 15th, CBC News website, author uh, Jorge Barrera. Um, and uh, it's a lengthy article, for, for especially for, for like our website. For CBC website, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it's in depth. It is, uh, the plum is great. The plum, okay, the as, plum an, is as, delightful. As, as an aside... The, the plum is... I think I like the plum more. Yeah, the oh, plum okay. is a little... That's the uh, winner. I'll get to that. I'm yeah. drinking mm-hmm. slowly. Yeah. All right, plum wins. Plum, plum is very nice. It's got that so slight tartness. Mm. It, it's a look at how faith, particularly evangelical faith, yes. is so central to this trucker convoy that's going on right now It would Ottawa. appear to be, yeah. And how symbols of the Christian faith, again, particularly evangelical Christian faith, but not only... Um, are just, you can't get away from them in nope. in the convoy. There's a stage there. They have church services virtually well, every see, day. They have you see a lot sermons, of worship things, sermons, prayers. They have these yep. like Jericho walks around the yeah. around the vicinity now. Yeah, and they say there's, the, there's breakout groups for prayer meetings. Yeah. yeah. Um, you can see verses everywhere. There's a picture of a verse here, a woman holding up a, a, a protest sign that says... Um, I don't know, it says like consent, not coercion or something. And it says Ephesians 6.12 without actually the verse written. Ephesians 6, 6.12 is the verse that says, we wrestle not against flesh and br- blood, but against like principles and authorities, evil. And the it's like, oh. Mm. I think that that may be an interpretation that I would not hold for that verse. So I want to ask about this because the, the article centers around, I think the main character in a sense, the main personality in the article is this man named george dick that's a mennonite d-y-c-k last name i don't think he's mennonite or anything maybe Mm. it doesn't say but it does kind of reference evangelical background Mm -hmm. this is a man who's 44 years old right now when he was 34 he's been a long-haul trucker for years yeah when he was 34 years old his life was kind of falling apart he'd fallen into alcoholism and his family was kind of drifting away four kids or something and uh he had literally a, a come to Jesus moment, yeah. accepted Jesus, turned his life around, family was restored, hardworking no. guy said um, he felt called to participate in this. Yes. 
and drove was going to originally go to one closer. He lives in somewhere in Ontario, was going to go down to the London ones, but then felt, nope, he needs to be at the Ottawa one. He's been there since day one, I think 18 days now as we record. He says that he prays every morning, God, do you want me to leave? And he says, I'd be open to leave if, if I felt God was calling me to leave. But yeah. God tells him every morning, stay right where you are, or has so far, stay yeah. right where you are, don't leave, you're doing the right thing from God. Um, yeah. Anyway, I, what, what were your reactions to some of this? I mean, when I read this this morning, I I felt both really bothered as my personal kind of understanding of faith doesn't align with a lot of what's being professed. Um, and so it bothered me. It feels like things that, that I have held dear are, are being used in ways that I think are hurting people. Um, the other thing that, that I found kind of striking by this article was, um, I mean, I'm not sure what supporters of, of the convoy would say, but it, it seems to be quite a fair-handed article and it intensely does not dehumanize the people that I they don't interview. Think, I, I don't think, think it's unfair um, to faith. No, no I think that's what struck me about the article is that it does place a very human face yes. on this convoy, which is mm -hmm. super divisive, let's be honest, right? And I just think, I, I read it and I was struck both by kind of a sense of sadness yeah. as I read it um, and frustration just because everything about the convoy eventually leads to frustration right. you're, for you're, me um the four of us here have a position against sure yeah. Yeah. yeah so i mean it yeah. was like a mixed emotion thing but the the sadness that i struggled with is this theme and this evangelicalism that this thread that's running through all of it and these things come from somewhere right they come they come mm -hmm. from the pulpit they let's, come from the pulpit let's be honest right and this didn't yeah. just happen overnight and this it, didn't happen no. like march no. 2020 we had no. a pandemic and suddenly people and had setting these up ideas the idea this, that this any government no. particularly Decades. liberal or left-wing government mm -hmm. even mm -hmm. slightly left of center government represents evil yeah yeah, yeah this wasn't uh, manufactured overnight non-faith anti-faith mm -hmm. yeah and i mean i think that's one of my my major frustrations and, and pushbacks against evangelicalism. I, I grew up in evangelicalism and I, I feel like I understand it <coughs> reasonably well. Um, but at its most, at its best, it is still, I think, quite individualistic. It, it is quite centered on personal salvation, personal accountability. Um, and it becomes about your personal relationship with God. Um, and so that, that leads to a, a struggle with mm, I think that's, that you don't have necessarily a connection with Christians or an understanding of like a universal church that is outside of if you're your Christian, it means you church. think like this. That's mm -hmm. full stop. Yeah, and yeah. and so it's it's there's hard. no room for anything. No, and and at least in how I experienced it, and and I would wish to caveat that because I mean I haven't really been a part of evangelicalism for a number of years now. Um, and, and I, I don't wish to actually, I don't wish to demonize everyone who, who is part of an evangelical church. I, I understand it may come across like that, but that isn't actually my intention. Um, but a lot of what was, was taught to me was actually quite divisive. There was always a categorizing, um, you have saved, unsaved, believer, unbeliever. Like there, there was always ways in which as a Christian growing up, I was told that because I subscribed 
to this particular understanding of faith that I was in the right and that other people who didn't believe this were in the wrong. Like, I didn't grow up thinking Catholics were Christian. I didn't grow up thinking that a lot of Protestants that didn't agree with my um, denomination stance on, like, baptism or that sort of stuff were really Christian. And, like, there was... So even within a Christian community, there was these stances against the other. And you see this, unfortunately, played out on a larger scale. Well, and I guess they would say... But people are doing that to us, you know. That, yeah. And that's one of the things that struck me was I just wouldn't question this guy's faith. No, not at all. Mm-hmm. Not at I, all. I wouldn't question that he feels genuinely positively motivated. It, some of the old tropes from evangelicalism are there in terms of this is, oh, this is the, this is the end times. I was going to yeah. say 100% one of the things near the end of the, the focus article on revelation. Yeah. talks about revelation. And I mean... But it's I mean, kind of a go-to, honestly, for, <laughs> I, I'm going to like pick on a group of people, but like how often do we hear Revelation quoted when there's just things that are happening in the oh, world I that are outside pastor, of our control or, yeah. you know, obviously it's the end times or it's the sign of the beast or these things. Yeah. They kind of cycle around every, you know, yeah. several years when things the, happen. The pastor in the church that I grew up in, I remember one, one sermon that he gave um, where he had come back from a trip and he was talking about how he couldn't pay for something on the plane with cash. It had to be a credit card. And that was a sign. And he's, oh, yeah, yeah, a cashless society. Yeah, and um, I remember at the time going like, that feels like a bit of a stretch. Well, but he was very even sincere. Even in this article, in there was that. a bit of and a like, I, I what's believe. next and climate change. Yeah. Yeah. That's going to be the thing yeah. that they're going to like. Yeah. Want well, just to pick up on what Allison was saying there? Yeah. I think I, I may have been at church with you that Sunday <laughs> at your church. Uh, going, what and, is he saying? And hearing that saying, and Revelation talks about a cashless society, and I'm like, what? I I've read the book of Revelation, and nowhere does it say that. And it was just sort of this thing of how how do you get that from this? It says and like you won't mm, be able to buy or sell without the market and beast. And yeah, and it's and it's from that to that to that. Yeah, and I'm sitting there like. How do we get to this? And there's so much that I've seen in sort of that evangelical understanding of it's we we take things and all of a sudden this is someone says this is what it means and then everyone jumps on it. And if you question that, then you're questioning the church leadership and yeah. that's not okay. Yeah. I mean wow, this, that's interesting. This article I, I like I said before. I think it it does a really good job humanizing, and I think it does too. But I mean, it does. It just lets people speak. Yeah, it does, and it I think tell a story. It does. Mm-hmm. Tell it does us what tell you believe. Tell us what you think. They do yeah. that thing. Sorry, to, they do that thing, and it's so common in these kinds of movements where it's like some obscure Old Testament reference, <laughs> and then go, "This is what's happening." You know what I mean? So they do that with Deuteronomy and the and Which the millstone, oh. saying like the you know you weren't allowed to take to confiscate a millstone, millstone as part of the religious law. Livelihood. And Justin Trudeau's trying to take away our millstone. We can't make our so we must stand again. You're like, holy shit! That's a really obscure <laughs> reading of. <laughs> You know what I mean? Yeah. But but they're like energized by it. it and I know I mean, it's... I do not and a doubt... pastor has stood up there and told them I that. I don't doubt so. the sincerity go back to the of pulpit. belief. Yeah. Yeah, that, that most of the people that I think align with this movement and, and would attest like an evangelical faith would would have. Like, I, I don't doubt a sincerity there. I, I do get concerned about some of the sources of that, personally, and what some of, I think, the results or, you know, entails of that may end up yeah. being. Yeah, well, it's like... Um, it makes me concerned. Like are these people being but used? And yeah. what are the kind of dark... But I think the we felt this for a while. 
people listening or listening to obviously if they listen to the podcast before that has a particular kind of perspective on evangelicalism and um, that this and of course what's happening in the United States now we're seeing the Canadian version of some of those and it's 60% of the funds for this are coming from the it's United States. It's kind of fueled by that. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it that does makes you question some things. And that what is happening is so for me as a pastor in an evangelical for church for years, but had a sense that the evangelical culture was pretty thin mm. and evangelical biblical interpretation generally. And I'm grateful for it. I love the time I've been formed in many positive ways, all that. But there is a little bit of like, of course, like this, this, it could head in this direction where it's so, I don't biblical think interpretation it, is so There was nothing weak. about this it's, article that was surprising to me. Like yeah. I go, oh, that makes sense. Oh, I learned sense. something. You learned something. Yeah. What I, did you learn? I did. When they were talking about Catholics and Protestants praying together and they invoked the name of St. Joseph and I didn't know that he was one of the patron, patron saints, saints of Canada. Canada. You are correct. I've learned something. Well, there, there we go. go. The more Whoa. you know. And on that note. <laughs> uh, well, oh, I really recommend reading the article. We'll yeah, put, we'll, you know, we'll link and, it. And uh, see what people think. Uh, I, Let us know. We like, think it, reach out. I'm sure like CBC is known by a lot of these more right wing elements as like lamestream mm. liberal yeah. bias media. I didn't see that in here. Um, it can be it can be biased in yeah, one I way, sure. but not like they're, uh, you know, th- uh, accusing them of. And I think this th- this writer, this um, the person who wrote this clearly set out to say i'm just going to hear from them and let yeah. them talk mm-hmm. yeah and uh that's probably what was upsetting about it. so take a listen um we'll uh, continue on in these conversations apparently the convoy might be coming to an end soon as of tonight there were 150 protesters left did you know that in that's ottawa all. yeah it's thinning okay. out in in the center <laughs> can we get rid of 370 the vehicles yeah i think that'll be harder to time. get removed yeah and the emergency oh. uh what is it called? Emergencies Act. Um, yeah, Emergency Measures Act or whatever has been has been invoked. So we're going to see the police move in and, yeah. and mm-hmm. handle this soon. Mm-hmm. The problem is, will there be martyrs created? How much of a hold does this take? What I is don't know. like? There's literally I heard on the news yesterday people saying, literally a guy who's like forty something years old, and then when they invoked the Emergency Measures Act, and so reporters went out and asked these these protesters, occupiers, what do you think? He's like. I'm not leaving no matter what. And, you know, I've lived a good life. Yeah. I'm willing to, no, I'm willing again, to give my life for this it cause. It speaks to, like, there's a sincerity yeah. oh, there. I just turned 40. Yeah. I'm not there yet on yeah. anything. <laughs> but it's the, you know, the You don't feel like you've lived enough of your life? No. So, well, read it. Thank you guys very <laughs> yeah. much. Thanks for the lovely cider. Mm-hmm. And good on to our Allison. interview with Rod Wilson. Thank you. Thank you. Well, we're pleased um, to be joined by our guest today, who I'll, I'll introduce in just a minute, but mindful of the fact that in any kind of work, be it kind of theological, cultural work, you you realize that there are people doing things that you appreciate for years or decades, um, not that far away, and you may have um, some interaction. And then you, sometimes you get a chance to actually sit down and speak with some of those people, and you just are really, really encouraged. And such is the case for us here today as we welcome our guest Uh, Rod Wilson has worked as a psychologist, served as a pastor in three different churches, uh, and has held multiple roles in theological education, including president of Regent College in Vancouver, and that was from 2000 through 2015. Rod currently works with Lumara, Grief and Bereavement Care Society, with Arasha, and with the Society of Christian Schools in British Columbia, and Intrust Center for Theological Schools. 
Uh, he also does a lot of teaching and mentoring in his work. And we're here today to speak with Rod about a book that we've read. Yep. Um, and you should read it as well. We would recommend it, definitely. Called Thank You, I'm Sorry, Tell Me More. I can tell you more, Todd. Then go ahead <laughs> or ask. Um, yes, Rod, we're so excited to have you here today. Uh, love the book. Um, I, we obviously want to talk to you about it. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Why did you write it? Yeah, well, it's great to be with you. So uh, thank you for the opportunity. Um, yeah, I wrote it for a, a couple of different reasons. I think one is trying to define what is the problem in the world right now? Like, I think a lot of people think it's religious, and some people think it's economic, and some people think it's social justice, and some people think it's political, and some people think it's the, the left-right continuum. I... I'm increasingly feeling the problem in the world is relational and hmm. interpersonal. It's how we connect with one another, quite apart from our content, our theologies, our beliefs, our convictions. So part of it was to write a book that reflected on the importance of relationships. I just think it's really important that we look at that. And I think the second reason I wrote it is I, I'm having an increasing concern that Christians are talking to each other too much. <laughs> and we're not talking beyond ourselves. So that got a reaction. That's good. Oh, yeah. that's wonderful. But, I love but, that, Rod. But they're just talking, like we talk to each other in our holy huddles, and we mm. all understand, and we're all mmming and amening and all the rest of it. And our only contribution to the culture seems to be to engage in culture wars and tell people they're wrong and it's inappropriate and this isn't biblical. And I just, my own view of the gospel is, and, and the biblical record, is there's so much good in what God calls us to that the whole world can benefit from and lean into. Hmm. And so good relationships is not the purview of the Christian world. It's the whole world. And so I, I wanted to write a book, and some of my you know, former academic colleagues won't be thrilled by this, but I'm kind of tickled by it, <laughs> to write a book that's selling in Walmart or selling in Target or selling in Barnes & Noble or Chapters. I just think more the, Christians need to be doing that. Yeah, and they you would know? see this not necessarily as the Target. No, <laughs> no. Like this is like, by, you know, I've been in the academic world long enough to know like having a book in indigo or chapters or uh, barnes and noble like that's that probably suggests you're doing something suspect but i wanted to do something that actually contributed to the world and a flourishing mm. you know is god's intent and i think it is god's intent then to write a book that will help people flourish yeah. was really important to me so i think it's those two reasons i think i wanted to contribute <laughs> to one of the areas that i think is problematic namely relationships and to write something out of the christian space into the other space that can really have impact. Right. No, no, and I think you've done that really well. Like the book is is very accessible, um, with, without being so simple that y you you don't find that there's like substance there. Like you you've done, I think, a very good job of of having important concepts. Which I mean, I I totally agree that uh, it's it's a simple concept that you've got, and I'll, I'll ask you to explain it in a second. But I think you anyone can pick this book up and and benefit from it and learn from it and connect with it and find ways that that this could be applicable for their lives and their relationships. Um, so the concept of it is three simple phrases. Yeah. Thank you, I'm sorry, tell me more. Um, and all of these things, you, you've spoken already a bit about how it's all about relationship, how we relate to each other. 
Um, and so tell us a little bit about those three kind of concepts, those three, cause they're, they're all, they all stand alone in some ways and all kind of interplay with each other as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think you're right. I mean, I think, you know, I often visualize somebody seeing the cover and they think, oh, a book on manners. We need more manners in the world, you know? <laughs> like people, any of us who are parents, you know, we're constantly telling our children, say thank you and say you're sorry and, you know, listen to other people. Oh, yeah. um, but to me, what's behind these three phrases are a bit of a cultural critique, I guess. I think we have increasing... Um, entitlement in the culture and for me entitlement is best summarized and I deserve it you know and and if you think of advertising and marketing and consumerism and the culture it's amazing that I deserve you deserve oh, absolutely well, you see that sold. one for the new uh, massaged chair yes yeah so you and I yes it's literally this and it's like you've made it you've yeah. done so well yeah you, you deserve this you deserve it ten thousand dollar massage yeah chair. yeah and if you put this code <laughs> number in you'll get a thousand dollars off yeah and anytime I think, you're gonna get a thousand dollars I don't want to spend a thousand dollars on any chair yeah. I'm not gonna buy one that needs a thousand dollars off right like that doesn't make any sense yeah. so this kind of entitlement of I deserve it seems so much part of the culture and to me the the antithesis. So I was trying to think, like, what is the antidote to these cultural trends? So the the I deserve it, the entitlement. Well, to me, the antidote to that is gratitude and to say thank you. Hmm. Like, if I carry a posture of I deserve everything, I'm not going to say thank you for anything because I deserve it. So there's no need to express it. And then the second one, there's an increasing culture of victimization, I think, where it's not my fault. I, I can explain, I can blame, I can tell you my intent, I don't care the impact on you. Uh, it's all this dynamic of I don't have to take any responsibility for anything, and I never have to say I've impacted you negatively, so I don't need to say I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. And we have some entertainers, some mm-hmm. sports figures, prominent celebrities who say, I never say I'm sorry, and it's almost virtuous. Mm-hmm. And to me, the antidote of, in, of victimization, of it's not my fault, is to experience remorse or repentance and say, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. Like, I've impacted you negatively. And the third one is, I think, one of the great developments in the last 20 or 30 years has been the the increased emphasis on story Mm -hmm. and on Mm -hmm. narrative. And my story matters. You know, you need to hear my story. And I think that's all really good and really true. But like a lot of good things, I think we're pushing it to the extreme now. And I want you to hear my story. But I don't want to hear yours. Thank you very much. Right? So so it's all, let me tell you my story. And that sense of individualism, that my story matters most, ceases to make us aware of the importance of other people's stories and that their story matters. And if I say, tell me more, it's an expression of care, yeah. right? I'm, mm-hmm. I'm telling them that, that I really am interested in your story. So the way I would frame it sort of simply is, thank you is a way to say, you impacted me. I'm sorry is to say... I impacted you and tell me more is to say we impact each other. And Mm so in a way, if we get beyond the manners analysis of these three phrases and look more deeply at these cultural threads and trends, I think we get closer to people when we acknowledge who they are Mm. by saying, thank you. I'm sorry. And tell me more. Mm. That's what, I mean, there's a lot of things that struck me about the book. And when you talk about, you know, where, where it might, be sold and such um there's kind of an of course with a book like this because this book is not about an academic theological even philosophical (laughs) principle and it is like maybe this will help you live better yeah (laughs) yeah and so it's something that but 
the thing that strikes me, I think most, and there's lots of things but about the book, is is that awareness of the other. And it is not in that way. So you have this like three sacred sayings. These will help you. These will help the world. But none of these can exist without the other. In other, in other words, the way I've kind of, is there is no self-help yeah. without the other. You can't grow mm-hmm. without an awareness of the other, awareness of the impact you're having on them, of of who they are, of who. One of the, so that comes out over and over again in the book in all three sections, and one of the one, the places that I feel that, given some of my own background and such, is um, the generational divide. Yeah, you know the the millennial boomer kind of um, that comes out a number of times. Um, what's some of your reflection on that? Like how how that's one of these fissures where we don't recognize the other. Yeah cross this line yeah well i think you're really right in that that the this issue i love the the african ubuntu statement i am because you are if you are not i cannot be and you know i think of that sentence i am because you are if you are not i cannot be like the words like they're not multiple syllables they're not big complex words you Mm -hmm. need to look up in a dictionary and yet as a western white male who's an older baby boomer, I have no clue what I just said. Like, I don't even understand <laughs> that phrase. I am because you are. If you are not, I cannot be. Because I'm a 60s kid. I was raised with autonomy, with independence, with individualism, the development of the self. And so the project, like the global project almost, was the development of self. Well, one mm. of the downsides of that, and I don't think it's all bad. There's an appropriate sense to it. One of the downsides is the emphasis on self and the development of self and this raft of self-help literature that's come out of the 60s and into the 70s, it makes the other very much distant and mm. removed and only there for my benefit. Um, so if I really understand that the other matters, and this is really the core of love for me, mm-hmm. like if love is actually doing what is in the best interest of the other. Like if that's my posture, that's the trajectory hmm. I yeah. bring, that I'm doing everything I do is not to make people feel good or make me pe- feel good, but I'm actually doing what's in the best interest of the other, then thank you, I'm sorry, tell me more, really full yeah. from that, right? And I think my generation that was enculturated into this standing on your own two feet, I'm an immigrant, I was born in Dublin. Ah. So, you know, all my life I heard, you know, we came here with nothing and look what we've done and look what we developed and look what we own and look what we bought and we're amazing. And then we go to church on Sunday and talk about the gospel of grace, but there was no connection between hmm. grace and we made it. Wow, Look, that's we, well we're successful. We've performed, therefore we're acceptable. And of course, grace is exactly the antithesis of that. Yeah. I'm acceptable, therefore I perform. So as a boomer, I've been raised in this generation of, if I work hard and I'm independent and autonomous and I really pour myself into something, then I can make it, I can succeed. And the more I do it on my own, especially as a male, mm. the more I do it on my own and the more I do it more independently and autonomously, the better I am. Yeah. Well, it just negates the other totally. Yeah. The other doesn't matter. Or the other is only there to actually make me better. Right. And if you do succeed, whatever the measure is, usually some kind of financial thing or security or something in that way, then th- it, it is deemed that that success is owed to your hard work. Mm. Absolutely. So then someone man. is 20 yeah. years younger and has not succeeded to... to to how much you have, well, they must be lazy or they must have done something wrong. And yeah. When that person 20 years younger could have worked twice as hard. 
Exactly. Of course that we know, but there, but exactly this awareness of the other person, which I think just comes out over and over again in really nice ways. Uh, another thing I was struck with in the book is the, uh, some of the little sayings you use. It is also a delightful book to read. Like mm-hmm. it's just like it's just you know oh there's this little thing here this because uh, it's story based it's you know encounter yeah. and incident based it's remembering this happened with me and my family one day or so and relatable but then also little sayings that so there's the saying in the Jewish tradition I'll I'll pronounce it improperly but hakarat hatov and what does that mean I've got a little bit of note here so that I, that was like how you recognize good or something. Um, and then there's other expressions in the book. I, I actually making this one up in one of the ones you were talking about springboarding, Hmm. how, when we're in conversation with someone and they're telling you a story, like I, Oh, they just got back from a trip and they're telling you about their trip. And you're like, I went on a trip one time. And why, um, how did you kind of play with those in, in writing this? Yeah. Like how do those come to your mind? And Yeah. Well, it was an interesting experience for me. It was very visceral and very sensual. Uh, one of our favorite places in the world is Hay on Wye in Wales. It's the used bookstore capital of the world. So this is a little town. <laughs> Amanda's eyes this. just lit up. Yeah. <laughs> She's like, so, big smile. <laughs> yeah. It's out in the country Did you in write Wales. it down? It's impossible. Did, yeah. How do you say it? Hay on Wye. Okay. So the Wye, it's right on the Wye River. There's 1,400 people in the town and 36 used bookstores. <laughs> So tell me more. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> they won't just. They should just give the books to each other. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> so it's this amazing place. There are uh, one of the times we were there is 10 million books in the town and 1,400 people and more sheep than people actually. Just a little tiny place, very obscure. Very few people know about it unless you're into books. So we've we've done three sabbaticals there. So what I did was I got a chair. Um, and I went to the Y River, took my shoes and socks off, had my shorts on, sometimes my bathing suit. I sat in the river uh, for a number of weeks, uh, you know, took time off for eating and sleeping, obviously. Uh, and I thought about experiences in my life where I saw the presence or absence of gratitude, remorse, and care. And I thought, where have I seen thank you in my life where I've done it poorly? Where have I seen thank you in my life where I've done it well? And I went through, and I had a little notebook and a pen, and I just wrote them in the river. That's and fantastic. then I came back and I thought, I need to remember these stories in more detail and I need to sort of enrich these stories with words. And then I started writing them. And then I looked at the wisdom for me that came out of them. Like, what, mm-hmm. what, what can I extract from this narrative, from this story that actually is, I can summarize in a sentence, because I've got a real conviction about that. Any of us involved in the educational world need to be able to say anything we're doing in one sentence, even if it's a two-hour lecture. Mm. Need to be able to capture it. What's that big idea? So it started in the river wow. in Wales and, and came to Vancouver in written form and then was published in the U.S. Well, it works, right? Like that Jewish saying, the, rec- the recognition of the good, you also outline there that there's three parts to that. Acknowledge good done to us. So we can just imagine that for a, for a second, that we acknowledge good actually done to us. Um, and that we then bring optimism. So it changes our, and then we, and this is, and then we express that gratitude, right? Yeah. So yeah. yeah, I think that's why I find it delightful, those kinds of things, because they clearly, and you've described it for us now, resonated with you, but then, you communicate them to us. And I think it's, yeah, I think it works really, really great. It's fantastic. And where I steal that from, Todd, is actually from Walter Brueggemann's understanding of the Old Testament, that the Old Testament has three trajectories in education. One is Torah, 
where God just tells, like, this is the way it is. I mean, it's not 10 preferences, 10 break up into small groups and see what you think. It's like 10 commandments. So it's really clear. Torah is very clear. The prophetic literature is very much God breaking in and just declaring in the midst of what's happening, this is my truth, this is my word. But the wisdom literature is under the canopy of the fear of God, living in the messiness and the earthiness and the granular nature mm-hmm. of life. So I you know, I talk in the book about thanking mm-hmm. toilet cleaners and oh, people that's great. who Alex, mop the Alex floor. The toilet cleaner. Yeah, like, yeah. so I go into a, a public washroom. You know, what does it mean to be Christian in a public washroom? Well, the church I grew up in, that's a bizarre question. Like, what a stupid thing to even ask but when i go into a public washroom as an older white middle-class male and i see somebody offering from another ethnic group who has lower socioeconomic status than me cleaning a toilet i feel deeply entitled of course they're cleaning the toilet for me i mean what else would they be doing i deserve this but if i notice the good that's being done and I acknowledge it, and I express it, then I thank the person who's mopping the floor in the washroom. But you do even, I, I, I agree, you do that, that comes out well, but you do even more than that in that little section. I remember that story. Because the way that you told that story, Alex was dignified in who Alex was, that you were able to communicate that Alex saw what he was doing as worthy. Yes, yes. And and so, I, and I thought those two combinations together, because I know that feeling as well, to be that person who is thankful to the person with the more so-called menial job or whatever. Yeah. But even that, you can still keep a distance. Absolutely. But, but that's one of the reasons I love that little story was that the, the othering is done away with because yep. Alex is humanized before you say thank you even. Yes, exactly. Really fantastic. Yeah. Anyhow, and to yeah. me, that's why this is deeply theological because if, if Alex is a fallen image bearer, then he has dignity. Like it's not even yes. my gratitude communicates exactly. dignity to him and gives him dignity. Mm. He has dignity. So my gratitude is actually acknowledgement of reality. It's not creating a reality. It's more and recognition of what's already present. Exactly. And then mm-hmm. I benefit. Like I'm not saying thank you to him so I benefit. Exactly. But one of the yeah. outcomes is I actually benefit from realizing, oh, there's a commonality here. We're yeah. both fallen image bearers. And therefore, me speaking to him eyeball to eyeball mm-hmm. and him speaking to me eyeball to eyeball is we found commonality. The distance is removed. Yeah, he's yeah. not another. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm not another to him either. Yeah. No, I think that that's, that's really important. I think one of my bigger takeaways through the book was like there, there's no place in which, yeah, you, you're given permission to, to draw those, those sorts of dividing lines and hierarchical systems and stuff like that. You, you can't do that yeah. in, 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 well, in, in your book, you can certainly do that in many other places. Yeah. Um, I think it's, it's fascinating that this is, this is based so much in story. And I know that we've, we've talked about it, Todd, in, in previous podcasts, like the importance of stories. And I, I'm loving that I'm hearing it in so many other places now, because I certainly believe that stories are important. Um, and, uh, I mean, specifically, you get in the in the in the tell me more section where where you have this right. invitation that that you're granting that, like you said before, like you're you're showing interest in in what another person has and recognizing that mutual impact that you have. And so so in the spirit of that, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? You do in the book. You, you, mm-hmm. you like yeah. there's highly personal stories, but in it's there. in bits until the end. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The epilogue. Yeah. I start to get a little religious history and I'm like, okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Todd's like, I could. So yeah. Anyway. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, tell me more. What would you like me to tell you more about? Um, I mean, I know that I know from from some some previous, you know, little bits of of conversation and interaction that there's some common theological DNA that you share with with several of us in the room, um, and and yet you are in a very different place from that mm. now. Mm-hmm. Um, how did that shift happen? Mm. Yeah. Well, I grew up in a context where spirituality was very much, and this word was even used, it, it's a vertical proposition, right? That's how it was framed. Mm-hmm. And I'm a very visual person, so I had very much the sense that that my Christian faith was vertical. If this was visual, people would see my hand yeah, yeah. going up and down in the vertical. Um, He's got the direction correct. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, you know, I know the difference between vertical and horizontal. Maybe not well east done. and west, but... It would matter here if you did or not. Yeah, really, yeah. Um, so that's what I learned. Like, my relationship with God is my relationship with God. And there was a deep sense in which spirituality and the transcendent was very much, you know, earth up to heaven, hmm. this kind of sense. And the manifestation of it in my relationship with others was kind of an afterthought. It was sort of a, well, we should be nice to each other because we're Christians. Failing to understand that the whole biblical text is, is captured, you know, when they went to Jesus and said, like, okay, so when it's all said and done, this is my paraphrase, <laughs> when it's all said and done, like, when it comes right down to it, what is the bottom line here? Like, what is the most important commandment? And he said, love God and love others. And my hunch is they were deeply disappointed because that doesn't sound very <laughs> very spiritual, actually. It sort of sounds half spiritual. And then I look at the Ten Commandments, the first four about our relationship with God, second six about our relationship with people. You go to the epistles. It's all, this is all manifested and shown in how we relate mm. to people. And what I saw, and I say this you know, with the recognition I'm guilty and, and a participant as well, but what I saw growing up was a, a vertical Christian faith that was not fully lived out on the ground, but it was kind of lip service on the ground. And then the way people were treated was really poor hmm. and was a denial of the faith that we believed. And if you go to you know, the three major Abrahamic religions that all have a sacred text to the Quran and to the Talmud and to the Torah and to the Christian scriptures, they all show you demonstrate your relationship with God in the way you relate with others. And I went through an angry phase in my 20s mm-hmm. and 30s where I was just so ticked off. I thought, I've been given this half-baked Christian faith. Mm-hmm. You know, it's all about reading the Bible and praying and going to services and a, not living it out with people. But in a sense, didn't you do well in that too? Do, do you know what I'm saying? Like, you're pushing against that system, but... You succeeded by many measures. Absolutely. Like you, you were a yeah, pastor. The, you became a yeah. president of a theological institute. Yeah. So this is kind of going on at the same time a little bit? or Yeah. I mean, there's... And as I said, I, I'm complicit in the system as mm. well because mm. I think there is... There's a version of Christian faith that ha- kind of has this hyper-spiritual view with a disembodied expression when it comes to the ground. So I love Parker Palmer mm-hmm. when he says, how did so many disembodied concepts emerge from a tradition whose central tenet is the word become flesh? Mm-hmm. And I like I find that such a powerful statement that I lived, and you're right. I mean, it got me places. I got a theological degree. I, I was involved in quote-unquote professional ministry. Mm-hmm. And so I lived into that. 
and I get the concepts, and I get the theology, and I get the ideological basis of Christian faith, but the actual expression of it, even the Bible argues this way, is an on the ground with other people. Mm-hmm. How I treat you tells me what tells tells everyone what I think of God. Yeah, and no, and I think I've gone through these two phases of my life of thinking it wasn't it wasn't that that phase was wrong. It it's sort of wrong in in a funny way, wrong <laughs> yeah. in the sense no, that I, yeah, it shortchanged it, yes. right? That's a good it word it left it. something out rather than it was inherently wrong. Like, I do want to work on my quote-unquote yeah. vertical relationship with God, but I don't want to separate that out from what it's like to live on the ground because that's the incarnated life. I think that's why I ask it that way because I, I don't think it's, you know, only your story where this exists, obviously. The, how you can succeed within a certain context, a certain religious or spiritual context. But as you are, you're kind of, that's helping you to see, this isn't, this isn't what it should be or what it's supposed to be, what they say it is. And yeah. so then these things come up. Yeah. In, in, in light of that, the gratitude section, um, being thankful for difference. I mean, you mentioned at the beginning, uh, Christians speaking to one another too much that, um, when we think about the other, what I want to get at here in this question is, what does it mean to be grateful for someone who doesn't have your view and is not going to have your view? One of the things that I feel enormously is, I'm so grateful not everybody's a Christian. Hmm. And, and I mean that. Like, it's, yeah. it's um, how, does that, how does that play, whether it's political, religious, social, to be grateful that someone is unlike you? Well, I think the paradigm of right and wrong, or black and white, or dare I say it, left and right, um, I think all of these paradigms polarize and allocate people into categories, right? So, I mean, the church I grew up in, like, the world was suspect and wrong, and we were not suspect and right, so once you have that Which is category, awesome. I mean, that's funny. Now. Yeah, it is. It seems <laughs> like you bizarre just, now, with right? the exception of the fact that a lot of people were hurt by that system. Uh, yeah, it true. becomes less. We but, have to but remember like, that. Yeah. yeah, like it's it's so absurd to a degree that it should be funny. Who's right? We are. Who's yeah. wrong? Everybody except yeah. us. Like, yeah. that's, that's a joke. That, yeah, we do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we arbitrate on that, right? Yeah. As to who's right and wrong. Yeah, but. To me, that misses, like, I mean, just a couple of theological constructs. First of all, being created in the image of God, and I'm obsessed with anthropology when it comes to theology because I think so much of our theology is about God and us rather than about how we were created. So the fact we're creating the image of God, that suggests to me that there is good in the world. Yes. And I've read Amen. Romans, and I preach Romans and yes. studied Romans. I know what it says yes. for your listeners who are going, <laughs> well, yeah, but what about Romans? Yeah. I know what Romans says, yeah. but there is good in the world. Right? It's not good that wins ultimate pleasure, approval from God. I get that. But there is good in the world. And so people do good things. So we had a, a pipe burst in our townhouse complex a few weeks ago at 2 in the morning. Mm. Oh. And all our neighbors were out with you know shovels and pails and helping people and doing things into the wee hours of the morning. And I, where does that come from? Well, for me, that ultimately comes from God. Whether these people have accepted Jesus or not, at that moment in time, is very irrelevant. Like, right. you don't bail water as a Christian <laughs> or bail water right. not as a Christian, right? So and, there is And it's good. not like witnessing hour. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, you're doing good now. That, yeah. <laughs> would you so, like to pray the prayer? Yeah. And so, the, you know, the theological construct of common grace, that God gives gifts, gives mm. these things to people. So, you know, somebody's going to be saved at Vancouver General Hospital today because some surgeon 
takes out a cancerous tumor, like their personal view of Jesus doesn't get in the way of whether they do yeah. successful surgery sure, or not. Yeah. Like there's good in the world and good is happening in the world. So when I realize that, then I can say thank you to people and not ask them to give me their CV to see where they sit religiously. Like there's something deeply good about people. I know some people who are irreligious have better marriage than I do. Yeah. Right. Well, I feel it when I'm wa- some, like, watching news or something, yeah. right? So we've got right now the trucker convoy in Ottawa and then talk about othering and dehumanizing from all sides. Yep. And all I was watching something from a congressional hearing or something in the United States a couple of weeks ago and somebody on one political party was absolutely offside in how she treated this uh, black man who was uh, up to be a judge. And she started talking about his quote, her words, rap sheet. Yeah. Right. So there's this dehumanizing and it was like unpaid parking tickets. Right. But she's trying to use an old trope to. Yeah. So then later on, on a commentary show on MSNBC or something, they're talking about it. And one really intelligent, thoughtful, and I'm sure kind commentators says, well, we learned one thing. He's a better person than her. So then I found myself, you know, emotionally defending her going yeah. Yeah. like, and this kind of that dehumanization that goes on across all over the place. Right. That yeah. And, you again through these really um, understandable and relatable stories are able to speak that. So, getting a little bit more specific, yeah. Then, um, you don't like malls. <laughs> I don't <laughs> like malls. So, yes. <laughs> so if, okay, I'm going to give like you have to do critique, right? You have to say. <laughs> Um, I found myself, I hate malls too, but I was defensive of malls because you have this one little story where you basically say these four things are happening in a mall. There's a little three-year-old being dragged out of a store by his mom Screaming. because he's a, you know asking yep. for, demanding something. These two teenagers are in the food fair and they're they're shit-talking somebody and yeah. these two old grumpy men doing this. And there was another fourth thing, I can't remember that. Yeah. And I found myself going like, I hate malls too, but they're not that bad. Um, <laughs> you know... Tell us about like how you're able to take little your own because you, your own likes and dislikes come out in this as well. Yeah, they do. But yeah. you let them speak. Yeah, yeah. How how does that relate to trying to say something about the transcendent and something meaningful? Yeah. Well, I would go back to creation in this one, Todd, because to me the creation story is not about guilt, in spite of what Paul says. I think <laughs> it's really about shame, and shame is all about hiding. So when Adam and Eve sinned, what did they do? Um, They hid fig leaves, trees, you know, fig leaves from each other to protect themselves from each other, uh, trees to protect themselves from God. So shame drives us into hiding. And I find the, the first question that God asks humanity is to me the most profound question that's ever been asked. Where are you? Where are you? It wasn't like, you miserable sinners, you have violated my law. As if God didn't know. Exactly. (laughs) And it wasn't like a, it was like hide and seek with your (laughs) two-year-old, right? Like when you play hide and seek with your two-year-old, you know where they're hiding and you go, where are you? And you can hear the little giggling over behind the bush. So God knew where they were. It wasn't a question of sort of ignorance, but his question was, please come out from your hiding. Please be honest with yourself, with each other, with me. Be declarative, be transparent, words we would use today. Be vulnerable, be open. And I think even though we're in Western culture, which is usually associated with guilt, and Eastern cultures are associated with shame, we are a culture in hiding. And a lot of us, dare I say it, in the evangelical world, 
specialize in hiding. Mm. And we hide mm. behind our pulpits. We hide mm. behind our Bibles. We hide behind our theological platitudes. You listen to some pastors for five years, you don't know the first thing about no. them. And for me, there's a dynamic in that that we need to have not unbridled catharsis. I mean, we've all listened right, to preachers yeah, who get up yeah. and say, you know, I just had a, <laughs> I just had a fight with my husband this yeah. morning, and I just want to share that with you. And you're going, yeah. too much information. Yeah. I don't want to yeah. hear this right now. I'd prefer to hear your sermon. <laughs> yeah. So there's that danger, obviously. But I think, you know, why is Brene Brown so popular right now? Like, is she a brilliant writer? Well, she's a good writer. Yeah. She's yeah. brilliant. Accessible. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. But she's writing about shame. And why are so many people in Western culture into that? Because they want, they want to see what's really going on. They want to be really open. I've talked to hundreds of people who've had affairs, and they don't say that sex was amazing. What they say was, I feel like I just came out. I'm myself now. I feel like I've come out of my hiding, which doesn't substantiate affairs. But it's this sense of being open, being vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of us, particularly men in positions of power, have a tendency to hide and lean on concepts and abstractions rather than reveal who we are. Because if I'm a forgiven image bearer, what difference does it make if I tell a story that makes me look really stupid? And there's a bunch of stories in this book make me look really <laughs> stupid, right? And they I, make I wouldn't me... necessarily use the word stupid. <laughs> yeah, well, sort of okay. child, yeah, <laughs> okay. yeah. yeah, or childlike or something, yeah. you know? And I think, well, you know what? You know, that when I, I talk about, you know, in that mall when my daughter ran away and I ranted mm. and raved and dressed her down upside the up, yeah, uh, you know, yeah. well, every parent reading that's going to go, yeah, me too. Yeah, we've all done that. That's how right? I took it. I took it as like, I learned some of the little things that bother you, mm-hmm. which those are the things you learn when you know someone. Yeah. And then you can tell you'll, it'll be safe to get to know that person if you learn the things that bug them, but they don't take themselves too seriously. Yeah. And that's how you write these things. Is yeah. like, and and then you're able to communicate a, a much deeper truth. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. but it is fun, and yeah. there is self disclosure, <laughs> yeah. yeah. and you're not trying to protect your image. That's, yeah. I mean, I don't think so. At least, no, <laughs> oh, yeah. no, yes. no, I'm not. Well, no. and and what I find very interesting about that, Rod, is I, I think you can only do that when when you hold um, a theological perspective the way that you do. If you're looking at that, you are. As, as you said, like a, you created in the image of God, if that's where you find your identity rooted, as opposed to, I'm just this fallen, worthless sinner, like, like it, or I've achieved some moral yes, success on my own. Like yeah. you, you can only get to a point where where you can actually genuinely express these things, be vulnerable, be like those sorts of things. When you don't, you don't have to worry about like upholding something, and yeah. and I think that's very very interesting. Um, you. Uh, if I might, like you, you move on. Um, I, I like the the concept that you have about remorse because I think, I think it is something that it's hard to apologize in in culture because you're, you're scared of either maybe being uh, complicit in something that could get you into trouble or that you are going to have like you know large consequences if that may be like disproportionate to, to whatever you've done. Or personal use it against you. Yep. yep. Yeah. Um, and, but, but I think it is, it is absolutely powerful when someone can come up to you and say, I really messed up. I, I, I'm very sincerely sorry. Um, so remorse is, is something. And I, and I think at least in, in my, my religious upbringing, remorse wasn't always presented in the healthiest of ways. Mm -hmm. Um, it was generally done out of something that was obligatory and 
you ended up having like a self-depreciation that needed to happen in that. But that's not what you're talking about when you speak no. of remorse. No. Um, could you could you give us a bit of what you mean when, when you talk about remorse? Because it, it's not in like an abusive, like um, I'm so devaluing yeah. Yeah. sort of way. Uh, could you reframe that for us a little bit? Yeah. No, I like the way you've asked that because I think... Um, so often remorse or apology is about the self and about how I'm feeling. And rather than, like, for me, saying I'm sorry is actually an exercise in listening, not an exercise in speaking. Because when I understand the impact I've had on somebody else, I want to hear that impact. Like, if I've done something, like, I do this in marriage all the time. Like, Bev says, you did something wrong. And I go, <laughs> well, you know, if you really understood my intent and what was behind yeah. that Here's and the kind of yes, day yes. I've had and all these kind of dynamics that I, I, uh, I explain my intent behind it, it's all I, 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 yeah. I, I. <laughs> That's a good sound. Right? <laughs> and it's not yeah, yeah. about her. So if she says, like, that really hurt me, and I say, tell me more, then I really understand how my words or my behavior hurt her. And then when I say I'm sorry, it's actually, it's what you were talking about earlier, Todd. It's the valuing of the other. Like, mm -hmm. what, what is her experience with me? And then I think one of the problems theologically in the evangelical world is a lot of us grew up to believe that if you feel badly for something and you say you're sorry, the more you feel badly for what you've done, the more you must be sorry. And so I remember as a kid, when, you know, they told me how to accept Jesus, like I had to feel badly for my sins. Well, I was a kid. I'm right. not sure I even understood what sin You're was. Like development. Yeah, yeah like to... I haven't sort of mastered the complexities of sin yet fully. Give me some time to work on that. Yeah, exactly. And, and I thought, and then I would think, oh, like I've accepted Jesus, but how badly do I feel about, oh, I don't think I feel badly. I, 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 I'm back into my how I mm. feel. But when I understand the impact on the other then I recognize remorse is not feeling badly about the past. It's a fresh commitment to how I'm going to live with that person in the future. So when I say to Bev, I'm sorry, I'm really not just talking about how badly I feel with what I've done to her before. Mm. I'm actually saying to her, that's, that's good. I feel sufficiently badly about this. I'm going to re... And, and it's the Greek word metanoia mm. in the New Testament. I'm going to turn my perspective around and I'm going to seek to live differently. Right? I'm not just going to keep saying I'm sorry. Any of your listeners who are in an abusive relationship, you know, the abuser punches you in the face and says I'm sorry, and then next Wednesday comes back and punches you again, and you're going, what was that sorry yeah. worth? It wasn't yeah. worth anything. But when I turn around, when I and this is the biblical word for repent, when I really turn the other way and I commit to being differently, mm -hmm. then it's true remorse. So I think what yeah. it gets back to is this focus on the other and the focus on change in the way I'm going to exist with you. So I love when Jesus, when you know the woman taken in adultery, and you know Jesus had this long conversation with the people who brought her in, but then he says to her, go and sin no more. He didn't say, okay, on a scale of one to 10, how badly do you feel about your adultery? Yeah. That was not the emphasis. It was yeah. more like, okay, this has happened. I've dealt with the religious leaders who've you know, accused you. Now, turn your life and don't make that a commitment going forward, right? That's true remorse, There's I think. Like, there, you know, as you speak, so many things going on in our culture, of course, right now, I have so much stuff up for grabs. And in terms of what you're allowed to say, what you're not allowed to say. Comedians talk about this all the time. The overused term, obviously, cancel culture or whatever. That, yep. But there is this, it makes me think of the other, another expression of this is um, realizing your impact on somebody else, but also that 
um, what it means that you're allowed to say something and the, and the one measurement of acceptability or non-acceptability is if someone is offended. Yeah. Which, of course, then is you can't say anything yeah. because offense is something that is subjective to that person. It's yeah. not about truth or about... and But that also calls you to a, an awareness of the other. And you see yes. people who have dealt with much more difficulty in life than I have or we, or, or we have, perhaps, who are able to see the other. This, of course, is the crazy challenge that in some ways you're not even allowed to say these days to see the humanity of your oppressor yes yeah. which is of course the hope of every civil rights movement and every that's what you know yep. gives it its foundation yep. so with that i thought of asking a question on often i'm watching the news or something again like the trucker convoy or the and i think what would it be like if people made um a practice of trying to argue the case of the other person yeah is this just idealistic or is <laughs> is it is, is there a possibility in that? Yeah. That, you know, so somebody listened to Joe Rogan, young white male who knows how to defend the perspective of a young white male. Yeah. And I find myself saying to people like that, why don't you defend the, the case of someone who's entirely not like you? Yeah. Is, am I being idealistic there or is there something that... No, I think you're onto something. And I would argue that that's part of what I'm trying to say in the tell me more. Because yes. I work in the assumption that... We're That's so true. obsessed with people's behavior that we don't know the story behind it. And we mm. assume discontinuity between the behavior and their story because we don't listen to their story. So, you know, I'm writing a book on relationships and you appropriately asked me, like, so where does that come from? Well, there's a story behind why I wrote this book. And this book is continuous with my story. And yeah. if you understand, like, you know, some people won't like this book or won't agree with it or whatever, but if you hear my story, at least you'll understand why I wrote it. So that's good. when I go to you and say, okay, you've done this, and that's all I look at, I need to hear the backstory of that. Like, what brought, like, tell me more about how you got to that conclusion. Like, why do you, I use the example of the federal politician that I talked to a number oh, yeah. of years <laughs> ago. And he'd made a big pronouncement about abortion and everything. And I went up to him and just said, like, tell me more about why you said that. And what's the backstory? And when I heard the backstory, I thought, uh-huh. that makes sense to me. Like, I under- I may not agree with your conclusion. Right. But, but there's a con- right, that, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. How you got I think there. That I, I think in terms of the, so you have someone defending themselves saying, well, what I did wasn't intended to hurt you. Yeah. I never did this. I never did this. And I find myself saying, well, don't you want to hear why they were scared of you? Exactly. Because exactly. they were scared of you. Yeah, yeah. Like, you might never in- have intended it. Yeah. But don't you want to hear that? Yeah. And of course, often those we don't get those yeah. lines crossed. Right? Well, just so. to give you a, a practical little example of this, sometimes in a class when I'm teaching a class, because I like using humor and in, in pedagogy, I'll say some. I'll go through the syllabus and I'll explain the syllabus, and I'll, I sometimes use the line like, "And for those of you who are a little bit obsessive, you know what I really mean by that line is this," and I, you know, give the give the the illustration line. So I did that a couple of years ago in a class. A woman came up after the class in tears and she said, I've been diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder. It's really painful. And when you said that, it really hurt me. Hmm. And I said, thank you. I said, you know, I'm trained as a psychologist. I understand the dynamics of that. When I use that humor about those of your obsessive, I'm just being funny but now I understand how you an individual struggling with that would hear it. And I've never said that again. And that's, she, w- I mean, she wasn't so offended. Right? She wasn't offended in that sense that so many people are offended now, but it was hurtful. 
And she knew my intent was humor, and she knew everyone laughed. She was actually trying to help you. She was trying to help yeah. me yeah. and she saying to she me, "She wasn't trying to do yeah. away with you." Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And for her, it was it was out of perspective that a psychologist would use obsessive compulsive uh. as humor. And I thought, "Good on you!" Wow, that's really that's lovely. exactly. Yeah. And so her confronting me on that allowed me to say, "I'm sorry," hmm. which then allowed us to resolve it. Yeah. Well, I mean, it seems like there's there's almost like this this radical like defiance of refusing to concede another person's humanity. Like you just absolutely cannot, cannot dehumanize in this. Because even if you are radically opposed to what a person may may espouse or believe, like there is still that that pull to go like you are a human you are like tell me more you have a story the and only, i want to hear it the only way yeah. you could dehumanize with this it, of course is to use these instrumentally yes to kind of use these three things to get something well, for yourself yes. so yeah Amanda, i'm assuming tell, that wasn't tell your me intention more. and you're like you're just bullshit you don't give a crap about what i have to say <laughs> yeah and yeah. that is possible yeah. and we've all had those thank yous absolutely and stories and yeah. Stuff too. Yeah. yeah and that's being used now quite effectively in the culture you know in the philanthropic world this is used a lot now like we know from studies that if you give money to somebody else, you will feel better about yourself. So give more so you will feel better. And it's like, what? Whatever oh. happened just to oh, good I and know. give, right? Like <laughs> it's called charity for a reason. It's not to benefit yourself. Uh, but it's like that's now that's, a, you, that's an appeal in philanthropy that an you'll feel happier appeal. if you give more. Hmm. It's like... But that's not Imagine the point. Imagine how happy you could be. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Give us more money and you'll be way more happy. <laughs> um, so... Well, I had we had that two two questions left basically, and then uh, uh, one kind of little end note. Um, do you, how are these things countercultural, and how are they not countercultural? Because sometimes I know growing up in in the church as well, any good thing was assumed that like we do this, but other people don't, and then you yeah. realize that's not actually true. Yeah. So how do you experience these things as countercultural, but how are they part of the wider culture as well? You mean the phrases themselves? Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, I think. Um, there are lots of people who experience gratitude and remorse and care. And, you know, I think, <laughs> I would hope that Christians would understand this well, if not better. I don't think we always do. But I think a lot of people do practice this. I think what we're losing in the culture is attentiveness to the other and the dignity of the other. Uh, and when you lose attentiveness and dignity, it's interesting in the compassion, fatigue, and burnout literature one of the first signs that you're burning out is you start ca- characterizing and caricaturing and stereotyping the people you work with. It's no longer Bill on the fourth floor. It's, Sorry, the schizo- it's the schizophrenics on the fourth floor, right? It's no longer, you know, the my boss and her boss and her boss. It's like the suits upstairs. So you know you're burning out when you start to depersonalize, dehumanize, categorize, uh, polarize uh. people. I think in this moment, the attentiveness to who the other is, is being lost. I mean, we go south of the border. I mean, I, you can diagnose that it's problem in many ways. It's not even seen as virtuous anymore. No, it's not. No. I mean, you just completely demonize the other, whatever they're like. If you don't agree with them, they're to be demonized. and ca- They no longer have a name. They no longer have a first name. Um, they're a Republican. They're a Democrat. And it's like, once we do that, I think then we've lost... For the culture, I think we've lost something profound. Like, hmm. it's not just a Christian thing. I think for the culture, we've lost something. But then for those of us who believe, I love the James 3 argument. Like, you curse people, yeah. and you praise God, and they are people made in his image and likeness. And the inconsistency is not 
praising and cursing. No. The inconsistency is praising and cursing the same object, right? You're actually, you're actually praising and cursing God and what he made. Yeah. And that's and complete and contradiction, mm-hmm. right? Complete. And I look at the so-called right-wing fundamentalism that we see going on now, and I listen to that stuff, and I don't say this arrogantly, but it doesn't even feel like my tribe when you read the Bible. It feels like, who are these people? It, it's that, another, it's a whole different, yeah. yeah. It's a totally, it's not, like if you're a careful reader of the Bible, you don't do that with people, right? You haven't right. read First John. you certainly don't cheer it when, no, you, when exactly. you hear it happening. Exactly. So I think That's there is a sense well. in which it's cultural and it's countercultural, but I think... Part of our mandate as people seeking to bring shalom to the world, which I think is part of God's call in our life, is that we infiltrate culture and dent culture in some of these ways helpfully as a model for how one can be relational. The the end of the book, I really appreciated the end. I I think it was interesting because there's so so many little stories, and then the end is, is longer. And it is a reflection largely upon kind of your religious heritage background yeah. some, and so I, I don't really have a question there other than like that's that's interesting to me that that's there mm-hmm. um and gives a, a retrospective to the stories that i think it brings even more out of them as mm-hmm. as, as when you know i've already read them but mm-hmm. oh this really um uh, gives that a, another layer of meaning. Mm-hmm. Um, so we always end with this question, and that is, uh, we can hear some of it in, in a number of your answers, but what makes you hopeful right now? What gives you hope right now? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of hope in this book. Yeah. So what is yeah. it that makes you hope? Good. I'm, I'm glad you see that, because yeah. I, I do think there is yeah. as well. Um, I think one of the great pluses in postmodernity is people have moved away from conceptual abstractions to lived experience. So I think lived experience now is sort of the new epistemology, which, you know, the philosopher in mm. me goes, eee, that's yeah. terrible. <laughs> but, True. you know, I mean, I can critique what I just said, but when we're in a world where lived experience really, really matters, I think what an opportunity for Christians to show the light of what it means to relate, not in the what, but in the how. Not what I'm relating, but how I'm relating. Yeah. Like, what an incredible opportunity. And I think it's what Jesus was talking about in that discourse in the middle of John. Like, how will we know, like, how will people know we're his disciples? Mm. Well, it's, you know, it's like, well, it's how we love each other. Well, I would go even more specific. It's how much gratitude, how much remorse, how much care we showed other people. And that will have an impact on people because whether we like it or not, most of the world right now lives in lived experience not aspiration Mm. to theological or conceptual (laughs) constructs, right? And again, I can critique that, but if lived experience, what an amazing opportunity to live in a way where people go, wow, those Christians are really different, and they mean that in a very virtuous way. What a great way to end. So thank you so much. Thank you. Fantastic conversation, which is, I mean, to be expected given the reading the book, and we do recommend it. Is there any... Any, where do you recommend people buy it? Anywhere that books are sold, it seems yeah. to be being sold. And that's one of the exciting things. You can buy it at Target and Walmart and Barnes and & Noble. And, and it just came out in January, right? Yeah, it just came out in the middle of January, yeah. And uh, in Canada, we're, it's being sold in Indigo and Chapters. And, and it's in Christian bookstores, too. So it's to yeah. me, it's lovely. I, I want to ride, I don't want to ride the fence, but I want to function well on both sides of the secular-sacred yeah. divide. Yeah. So to have a book that's selling in Target and in Christian bookstores, I think, mission accomplished. Right. Well, go and get it. <laughs> yes. 
And uh, thank you so much. Thank and you. thank you, Allison and Amanda, who's here uh, producing as well. And thank, thank you, so you too. I enjoyed being with you. It was a fun oh. conversation. Yeah, it was very good. <laughs> yeah. Take care. Rector's Cupboard releases a new episode every other Friday. The podcast is a production of Reflector Project. Hosts are Todd Weeb and Allison Williams. Cupboard master for tastings and locations is Ken Bell. Production and social media by Amanda Miner. For past episodes and other content, visit rectorscupboard.ca. Thanks for listening.